mentor who once told me, never tell people that you're tired or busy because they already know and so are they. Um, I did get up at 2.45 this morning, so um, I'm hoping this one makes sense. I think we're going to have a great time, though. We're talking about caring for the creation today. I've actually been excited for this message for quite a while because the series that we're in is called You Asked For It, and the idea behind it was that um, I live on Thwing Street in Roxbury, and I love my neighbors so much. And over the course of the summer, I wanted to teach on topics that my neighbors were interested in. Like, what is, what is going on in Boston's head? What do, what do the people of Boston want to hear about? And that's where you asked for it came, come, came from. And so caring for this creation that we have is a very high value on my street, in my neighborhood, in our city, in our society, globally in this world. And yet the church rarely addresses it. Some churches do a little bit, but... but Oftentimes, churches just completely ignore it, and so I thought, well, let's look at what the Bible actually says about it, right? Because so many times our thinking is just determined by, we just think uncritically about the world that we live in, and whatever our sort of like 10th grade science teacher or history teacher told us, you just like think that's what it is until one day you get a little bit older and you start thinking for yourself, and you go, you know, I'm not sure I've ever wrestled deeply or engaged with these ideas before. I remember the first time I ever thought about environmentalism I was, I was a little kid, this was the 80s, um, which was an awesome time to be a little kid, and we went to McDonald's, and I think it was Earth Day, so when you would go through the drive-thru, you'd, I think you had to pay them a dollar, and then they would give you a pine tree in a plastic bag, okay? Now, I'm fairly certain that this was an invasive species where I lived, but I got this pine tree in the plastic bag, and I took it home and with my mom, and we planted the tree in the ground. And the message to me as a little kid was crystal clear, right? It was like, you've got to care about the environment. And in school, and on, you know, I, I watched TV, I was young, I was, uh, I'm old enough to, that I watched a lot of a show called Captain Planet, Go Planet, and... Um, and so I knew that, thing, I mean, I knew there were problems out there in the world. When I was little, it was deforestation. I think that's why McDonald's was handing out the trees. And then after that, it was the ozone layer. The problem with the ozone layer went away a little bit. I don't know if you noticed that. Nobody talks about the hole in the ozone layer anymore. And I think it's because the 80s and 90s are over, and the hairspray usage has dropped dramatically. I th- that's, my, that's my working theory. So as a little kid, you know, I kind of got the message it's important to care for, for this world that we live in and care for creation. Now, I didn't really think about that again until I was 31, and it dawned on me the irony of a corporation like McDonald's reinforcing the value of environmentalism. I mean, you're talking about, you know, mass farming of beef on a scale that this world has never even, like, that, that's not going to register in your mind when you're four, but when you're 30, you think more deeply about this, and to me, that's actually a great picture of the, the kind of the contradictions and the, the, the struggles that we face in understanding this idea because, because it's important to care deeply, but as you get older, you realize it's a little more complicated than it seemed like when you were young, and if you're not careful, you get skeptical about it, you get cynical about it, and then you just kind of throw up your hands and do nothing. That's not a viable option. The options presented to us in society are... Um, they're extreme on both ends, which is a mirror of the rest of our society, right? That our, our options are always extreme. That, you know, on one extreme, you have to, like, you know, move into a commune and, and become a hippie and name your kids things like river and leaf. I used to have, I used to have kid, actual, when I was a youth pastor, I used to have actual kids named river and leaf. So, 
didn't say that until I moved on from that church. But, you know, it's like you got to move to the commune, and you just got to, and it's like, then you got to burn your car, and into the wild you go. But on the other side of it, it's not much help either just to, to, to ignore it, pretend like there's no issue, that humans don't have an impact on the world in which we live. Of course we do. Of course we do. And actually, God has set it up that way. So what I want to do today is explore biblically what does the Bible say about caring for this creation in which we live. And of course, you know, if you're, if you're not familiar with the Bible, maybe it'll surprise you, probably not. It all starts with God, right? In the Bible, it doesn't start with creation. It starts with God. Genesis 1.31, so this is the first chapter of the Bible. The word Genesis basically means beginnings. It says this, and this is in your teaching notes, so now's a good time to pull those out. It looks like this. It says, then God looked over all he had made and saw that it was very good, and evening passed and morning came, marking the sixth day. Now, I want you to take a pen, a nuclear orange renewal pen, and underline the words, very good. Because in Gnostic thought, G-N-O-S-T-I-C, in Gnostic thought, the spiritual world is seen as good and the material world is seen as essentially evil and transient, but that's not a biblical worldview. According to the Bible, God makes this whole world and it is very good. What God has made is very good. He makes it in six days. It's good to God and that's a wonderful thing. Now, I want to give you today, if you open up to the inside of your teaching notes, four truths to shape your care of creation. And I think today's message is going to be about half the length of a normal message. So we'll get to those cookies sooner rather than later. But here's the first truth to shape your care of creation, right? Now, now before I get into the, I just want to say, like, like, you think about the way we're thinking about this. It's four truths, right? It's not four things you can do. I don't want to stand up here and tell you to recycle. I hope you already know that you should do that. In Boston, you literally just dump it all in a big tub, right? So this isn't going to be the, the like, hey, you need to recycle message. This is a message to help us think deeply about why these things even matter in the first place, to think about these things the way that God thinks about these things. So here's the first truth to shape your care of creation. Number one, God created the earth. Write that down. God created the earth. God created this world. That's why we call it creation. And actually, if you think about the power of language and words in society, it is, it's, it's, it is not as often referred to as creation anymore. It's almost always the environment because creation implies a creator. But as Christians, we use that word. We embrace that word because we believe that what is comes from God. Now, it's not just the planet Earth. We believe that everything that exists comes from God, that there's a creator God, and that he creates ex nihilo or nihilo, which is Latin for out of nothing, Right? He creates in a way that human beings can't create. If you're an artist and you make a beautiful sculpture or a piece of work, what you're doing is you're taking materials that already exist and rearranging them to create a piece of art. That's how an artist creates. But that's not how God creates. In the Bible, God just speaks, and his words have creative power. Right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, according to the book of John, that God speaks this world into existence. Now, there's, now think about that for a second, the, the power of words to create. We see that in our own lives in a very limited way, because 
uh, I have little children now, and you can completely shape their reality with just your words. You can destroy them with words, or you can build them up with words. And this is a reflection of the way God is in an ultimate sense, that he creates with his words. And in Genesis chapter 1, God creates the world in how many days? Six. Trick question, nailed you, Judith. All right. God creates the world in six days, and he rests on a seventh day. Because that, that ceasing from work is a part of, that was really mean. I'm sorry. I'm going I'm to buy you lunch for that. Yep. <laughs> ceasing from work is a part of God's good plan, right? That's, that, that's not just a, hey, uh, Jews need to take a Sabbath thing in the Bible. That is a, in the very nature of creation, there is a ceasing from work that is built into the rhythm of all life. And if you don't understand that and you don't practice that in your life, you will burn out and you will blow up your life. God himself ceased from work to make a pattern for us. Now, he creates over the course of six days, and there's something really cool happening in Genesis 1. And this is not in your notes, so if you want to write it down, I want you to write the numbers like this. One, two, three, four, five, six. You write that down in your notes? One, two, three, four, five, six. And on the first three days... God is creating spaces, essentially, environments. And so he creates the heavens and the earth on the first day. And then he creates, um, he creates water, he creates dry land, he creates spaces on days one through three. And then on days four through six, he creates things that fill and govern those spaces. So that's interesting. So on day one, he creates uh, I believe he creates light first, actually. And then on day, f- that's day one, and then on day four, he creates the sun and the moon to fill and govern those spaces, right? He creates water covering over the face of the earth, and then he creates fish to fill it. He creates dry land, and then he creates uh, animals, plants, and human beings to fill it and to govern it. And the whole point of this, of what this Genesis 1 is building to, is that God is creating a perfect place for humans to live. Like, it's, it's so thoughtful. It's so incredibly thoughtful that he creates this, this place that human beings can thrive and live and grow and be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it because he cares so deeply. And the Bible's full of this, that, like, God cares about That he cares about birds, he cares about sparrows, he cares about people, and you see that in the creation that God makes. Our first point is God created the earth. He does it in six days. And what this means is that the earth belongs to him. Here's the verse that's written down in your notes. Psalm 24, 1 and 2 says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all its people belong to him. For he laid the earth's foundation on the seas and built it on the ocean depths. Do you catch the logic of that verse? God made it, therefore it belongs to him. Just like an artist who creates a piece of work, that piece of artwork then belongs to the artist until the artist sells it or gives it away. And in fact, there's probably an even better metaphor here that if an artist gives that piece of work to hang in a gallery... The gallery owner has to take care of it, but it still belongs to the artist until it sells. In the same way, God makes this world like a piece of art, and so it belongs to him. 
Now, the clear implication of this is if it belongs to God, you do have to take care of it. I, uh, I used to own a pickup truck in Boston, which was a terrible idea. Because I drove the truck like three times a year, and people asked to borrow the truck like 90 times a year to help them move in Boston. So one time, uh, a young woman from the church uh, who no longer goes here and who shall remain nameless borrowed the truck to help herself move. She takes it and just scratches it all down the side of the truck and then gets a bunch of parking tickets and doesn't pay them, so they just come to me in the mail and I get a bunch of, and doesn't tell me, so I just get a bunch of parking tickets in the mail. Which, that's why I sold the truck. I just couldn't take it anymore. But the fact that she destroyed my truck... You know, it was like, it belongs to me. Like, you got to take care of it. And in fact, it even shows a little bit of disrespect, doesn't it? Like, if you loan somebody something that's really nice and they don't take care of it, and they don't even, like, apologize, it's just like, there's some disrespect inherent in that. So think about that. The Bible's crystal clear that this creation belongs to God. Therefore, you got to take care of it, right? It belongs to him. And to just not take care of it all is to disrespect the God who made it. God created the earth. All right, here's the second idea. We're talking about four truths to shape your care of creation. The first is that God created the earth. The second is that creation reveals the creator. When you look around the creation and you encounter beauty, orderliness, creativity, caring and concern, you encounter consciousness, you see DNA, All of this reveals the creator, and it's intended to lead you to worship. One of my favorite, I don't know, like um, for me it's an evidence of the existence of God that I see in creation, which is that the, the physical laws of the universe can be described through simple and elegant equations. Have you ever wondered why that is? Why should it be that way? Why should it be discoverable? Why should you be able to explain it as something like E equals MC squared? And you're, 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 you've got four characters, and you're describing mathematically fundamental properties of the universe. Why is that? Well, because it reflects the mind of God. That's why. And so you see in the creation, and it's supposed to cause you to worship the creator. Let me share with you Psalm 24, 1 through 2. Now, this is all over the Psalms. This is all over the Bible. This is one example of the Bible praising the creator because of the creation. Listen to what it says. The heavens proclaim the glory of God. Now, in the Bible, when it uses the word heavens, you don't always know exactly what it means. Here, it it pretty clearly means the skies. So, like, when you look up at the night sky and you see the motion of the planets and the heavenly bodies and their orbits and the moon and the stars and all of that, it proclaims the glory of God. The skies display his craftsmanship. Day after day, they continue to speak. Creation is saying something about the creator. It says night after night, they make him known. There's an older translation that says they pour forth knowledge, which is a really cool idea. They speak without a sound or word. Their voice is never heard, yet their message has gone throughout the earth and their words to all the world. Psalm 24, 1 through 2. The creation reveals the creator. And when you encounter things in creation that evoke your awe, 
The whole point is that that supposed the next thing that comes into your being is you, you know you see something that's just unbelievable, and your next thought is yeah, and who made that? And it's supposed to point you when you experience awe to the Creator who made the creation. The rhythm is that awe of nature leads to awe of the creator of nature. And you don't want to get this twisted. You don't want to begin to worship the creation rather than the creator. That's actually the heart, and the the Bible calls that idolatry, when you worship something in the creation rather than the creator. Now, you can do this in really old school ways by literally worshiping the creation. People do that. People still do that. Um. But you can also worship things in the creation like people's praise, like success and achievement. In our, in our American society, success and achievement tend to be one of those things that we crave inside of the creation instead of the creator himself. This is talked about in Romans 1, 19 through 25, and this isn't in your notes, but as I was praying about it this morning, I thought it was important enough to just read this to you directly from the Bible. It's Romans 1, 19 through 25, and it's talking about this idea about how the creation reveals the creator, and if you worship the creation instead of the creator, that's idolatry. Listen to it. It says, they know the truth about God because he has made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. Yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. And they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like. As a result, their minds became dark and confused. Claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools. Now listen to this. Instead of worshiping the glorious ever-living God... They worshiped idols made to look like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. Skipping down to verse 25, it says, They traded the truth about God for a lie, so they worshiped and served the things God created instead of the Creator Himself, who is worthy of eternal praise. Amen. You see, as a Christian, it's really important to get this rhythm right that the creation points you to worship of the Creator. And that you never, your praise and worship is never supposed to terminate on something in this world. And without a vision for God, that religious and worshiping impulse that's found in all human beings will terminate on the wrong place, and then it will eventually destroy your life. Um, My one last comment on this idea of the creation revealing the creator is that people will often say to me that they connect, they'll say, I connect to God in nature. And if that's you, and you live in Boston, I'm sorry, I know it's hard for you. Um, and I think, and, and when I hear that, you know, my, my initial response is actually like, you know, that's actually a beautiful thing, because the Bible says that's what's supposed to happen. However, oftentimes when people say, I connect to God through nature, they mean, and therefore, I don't need, I don't need people, I don't need community, I don't need the Bible, I just go to nature, and I have this sort of like, wash over experience of spirituality. But the whole point of nature is that you get to know the God of nature, that you get to know him personally. Um, It's kind of like the difference between seeing a girl you like at church. You see her, and you think, I'd like to get to know her. 
versus receiving a love letter from her. It's the difference between generally knowing and personal knowing. And so, uh, connecting with God through nature is an incredibly good thing, but that should drive you to a desire to know more about this God, and he reveals more about himself through his word in the Bible. Okay, so that's the second, the second truth to shape your care of creation, that the creation reveals the creator. Number three, humanity creates culture. I'll write that down, and then I'm going to explain how that's related to creation. Humanity creates culture. God makes the creation, then human beings are supposed to rearrange the creation to make culture for the sake of human flourishing. Look at Genesis 1.28. It's, um, it's in your notes on the second inside page. It says, then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and govern it. So God makes the world and then he tells people what to do. And the first thing he says is be fruitful and multiply. And what do you think he's talking about there? He's talking about having babies, all right? That's cl- I mean, that's part of what God said to Adam and Eve as part of, but it's not just these two people, it's they're, they're stand-ins for all of humanity, right? And so God is saying, I want you to, as much as you're able to, because not everybody's able to, but if you're able to and you're married, have babies. The Bible is incredibly pro-baby. And as Christians, we're big on babies. We love babies. We're pro-baby all the way. Love babies. God is really big on babies. And I know that that sounds utterly ridiculous to you because you're like, you know, like what pastor's going to be like, I hate babies. Babies are the worst. I can't take babies. However, I do think that we have perhaps as a society lost our vision for the blessing that children are. And so we're like, we're like constantly like over-evaluating the pros and cons of children, right? When the Bible just sees them as this unadulterated good in your life and in this world. And if you get this upside down where you, where you ignore God's purposes for humanity, then that leads you to strange places. You may have seen some of the articles recently about people who um, are, are, no, are choosing to no longer have children because they're worried about the future of our environment. Right? Well, that, that's, that's upside down thinking, from what God reveals in the Bible. God is totally pro-baby, loves babies, and so we should too. However, we're not just supposed to fill the, uh, be fruitful and multiply. We're also supposed to fill the earth and govern it. Govern it means that we're running it. We're supposed to be the wise caretakers of creation. We are to create culture by rearranging the creation. Think about Adam and Eve in the garden. What do they do? They take the raw material of plants, they rearrange them, you get a garden. That's creating culture. Musicians rearrange notes to make music. They generally don't make up new notes, do they? It's the same 12 notes. They rearrange the sound waves and it makes music. People rearrange stone to make buildings and you get architecture. People rearrange biology and chemicals to produce medicine. People rearrange these basic flavors and tastes to create the wide variety of human cultural expression that's food. Humans are supposed to govern this world by creating culture that promotes human flourishing in this world. This is maybe the heart of the message today, that when you think about biblically what this creation is for and human beings Um, interaction with it, is that human beings are supposed to use but not abuse creation for the sake of human flourishing. That's really the heart of it. Human beings are to use but not abuse creation for the sake of human 
flourishing. My, um, my favorite uh, commentator on the book of Genesis is a man named Meredith Klein. And here's what he says. He said, it was not intended that man's dominion over the earth and his appropriation of its resources should be twisted into a process of destructive exploitation. Indeed, for man to ravage and poison his world would be to turn it into an unmanageable monster, a savage master that would tyrannize him. In other words, humanity is supposed to create culture and take care of this creation in such a way that promotes human flourishing, and if we don't, we're the ones who pay for it. All right, our last truth today. Number three was humanity creates culture. Our fourth truth to gain a biblical perspective on caring for the creation is that Christ redeems it all. Christ redeems it all. You know, people think that, um, you know, the Bible uses the word sin all the time. It's all over the Bible. It's an unbelievably helpful word. It's something that you do wrong that carries a moral implication or judgment with it. It's a very helpful word if you're trying to describe something like that. But people tend to think that sin is overly simplistic. And so, uh, you know, they tend to think it's like you break one of the Ten Commandments. You do something wrong personally. That's a sin. That's, that's it. That's, that's the brokenness in our world. You know, if you break the Big Ten, if you tell a lie, steal a pie, or kill a guy, you've sinned, and that's... That's the issue. But the Bible's understanding of human evil is multifaceted and much deeper than, 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 than probably what almost anyone, myself included, truly understands. No, there is no book in the world that I have ever found that understands human nature like the Bible. And in the Bible, there is a place where you encounter human brokenness on a personal level, where we sin, where there's generational sins in our life, where we just express selfishness. That's absolutely true. That's a part of it that, that's in there. That's personal moral evil. Um, it's when instead of, instead of seeking the flourishing of humanity, you're seeking the flourishing of me, you know, seeking the flourishing of Jared. That's personal brokenness. But in the Bible, there's also expressions of sin that happen culturally. It happens on a much bigger level. Um, entire cultures can be blind. I mentioned before that one of our idols in our culture is success and achievement. That creates cultural blind spots, and then that can lead to the sin of many people, and we're not even aware that we're doing it because we're so embedded in our culture. And when I say both of those things, you probably understand, it probably resonates. Personal sin, cultural sin. But the Bible also says that creation itself is broken. Not that creation sins, but the creation itself, there's something broken about it. And this is, this is like, this is a pretty mystical teaching from the Bible. There's a mystery here. There's something spiritual here. That the Bible says that when Adam and Eve sinned, that creation itself was broken, and instead of willingly yielding its fruit to Adam and Eve, that the creation is resisting humanity, that it's broken. And that this is the reason why you have natural disasters. You might have 100,000 people die in a tsunami. It's why you have tornadoes that shred um, people's homes. It's why you have, um, it's why you have nor'easters. The creation itself is broken. However, there is a day coming, according to the Bible, when creation itself will no longer be broken. And this day is coming 
with Jesus, and the creation itself is looking forward to this day. Now, that's an interesting thought, isn't it? Romans 8, 19 through 21 is the clearest place in the Bible where it talks about this. It says, all creation is waiting eagerly for that future day when God will reveal who his children really are. Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. That's referencing back to the story on Adam. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. There is a future coming when creation will no longer be a source of corruption or frustration or death for people, and that future is coming with Jesus. According to the Bible, the end of the world is not the sun slowly burning out, expanding out until it engulfs the earth. It is the return of the king in a moment when the world itself will be renewed. And creation itself is ecstatic, not only over the idea that Jesus will return and redeem it, but that the people Jesus has redeemed will be in charge of caring for the creation. So what does that tell you about those who are currently redeemed? Creation should be ecstatic that you're here in this world creating culture. As we close, um, this idea that the creation longs for the return of the true king is There's an echo of this story in the strangest place. And it's the Lion King. You guys remember the Lion King? So think about this. When Mufasa, the rightful king, rules, there is balance in creation. But when he is usurped by Scar, the creation suffers. There's a drought. People are starving, but then what happens? When the son of the king returns from the dead, as it were, to take his rightful place as the ruler, the land is healed and everyone flourishes. Now, isn't that odd? It's a story built right into the core of who we are as human beings, and so you find echoes of it all over the place. The message of the scriptures is that Jesus is the son of the king returning to heal the creation and heal people. He's redeeming people now in anticipation of that final day. He is restoring people to their God-given task of worshiping the creator rather than the creation. He is restoring you to the task of, of promoting human flourishing in this world. And maybe if you're married, having some babies too, because he's pro-baby. He is redeeming people from their sins. God is giving them good work to do. Therefore, we ought to worship Jesus and get to work.